Hello, this is Stump, Death and Taxes. I'm Meep, otherwise known as Mary Pat Campbell. And today I'm talking about risk and that there's no such thing as risk-free. So it's story time today because uh, I'm going way back to my first formal concept of risk and getting the theoretical side and the real life side at the same time. So I was in graduate school and I was taking a class on financial derivatives. We were doing all the math stuff. Um, and no, this is not calculus, except it is. It's, you know, stochastic differential equations. We're doing the Black-Scholes equation and all of that. We're deriving it. And I remember my sister, who was an accountant, was taking classes doing this as well and saying, oh, yeah, we were doing derivatives pricing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, there is no way you're deriving stochastic differential equations from first principles and Brownian motion and yada, yada. And that was definitely not the case. They just had the formulas and, you know, look stuff up on a table to get the Z1 and Z2 and all of that. In any case, going back to my grad class, the theory made sense. You know, you had puts, you had calls, you had swaps, you had swaptions, you had all these different derivatives. It was a hot time in the 1990s, late 1990s. Things were going great. It was a bull market. All my friends were going into the dot-com boom stuff. And then long-term capital management melted down because a lot of things were, well, not a lot of things, a very specific things were melting down and in specific things that LTCM, long-term capital management, a hedge fund, which it happened to be one of Black Shoals and it happened to be Myron Shoals, was part of long-term capital management. Uh, basically, it's it really got handed its shorts. Uh, literally, um, they had a variety of positions, and a lot of hedge funds are really just a grab bag of strategies. You know, not just a single strategy, but a bunch of things where they're looking for market inefficiencies. Usually they take something that's a small little bitty problem and then they leverage it so that it gets amplified. So they're trying to get a return off of what's ultimately a risk. And I'll get back to what is risk and amplify the return they're getting off of that risk. So they're magnifying the risk they're taking. So the magnifying effect. And when it falls apart, it also means they take a bigger loss than uh, what they would expect. This was what, in 1997, 1998? In 1998, they got bailed out. Now this was interesting. So they were melting down uh, for a variety of reasons, basically they, there were, I shouldn't say basically, there were a lot of different things going wrong for them at the same time. In particular, a lot of their strategies involved waiting out inefficiencies, what they saw as inefficiencies in the market. 
they were essentially pricing liquidity risk and some other risks, operational risks and some credit risks at zero, or that they could wait out and they weren't being exposed to this risk. Turned out they were and took losses, but then there's what's known as political risk or non-risk in their uh, specific situation. If you've got the right connections, someone can bail you out. All that means that they still ended up, you know, having to fold eventually. Um, it, it didn't, it's not like they did all that great from it. It was a, a notorious failure of the fund. And it also decided me, and it wasn't, this wasn't the only reason, but it was so obvious that this theory, this finance theory, and a lot of the people who, who were doing this research at NYU, at Courant, even before they got the PhDs, were working for hedge funds. It was obviously a boom and bust kind of industry. I, I remember a few of them seeing some of my old grad school colleagues showing up in their suits and like, oh, yeah, I'm working at Lehman Brothers. Well, they're not working at Lehman Brothers now, are they? Um, it it happens, you know, This these kinds of things happen. But it really pointed out the gulf between the theory and I, I don't want to get too much. These people were not that snowed by the theory. They had some people with practical experience involved in the hedge fund as well. Uh, so they did know some practicalities that said they still underpriced, as it were, the risk they were exposed to. And there are various ways to price risk. So I'm an actuary. We quantify risk. We price risk. We put dollar signs on it. What does that mean? And I'm talking about finance and risk here. So I'm not going to get into regular insurance. So this is hedge fund stuff. So we're talking about finance. So we'll talk about a distribution of results. And that's what we're really thinking about. And this is not just actuaries. A lot of people do, you know, quants and that kind of thing. Anyone can look at the distribution. And there are different ways we can put dollar signs on this because, yeah, you can go with the expected value, so kind of an average, but obviously there's variability around that. And that's usually what we consider risk. The thing is, of course, there's a lot of different definitions for risk. Now, risk is not necessarily just bad things happening. I'll give you an example is with uh, Bitcoin. Okay, so Bitcoin was uh, climbing, uh, you know, meteorically. To someone like me who like looks at Bitcoin and say, I have no idea how, how they're generating Bitcoin. I mean, I kind of understand the, you know, the concept behind doing that. But from my perspective, it's wasteful. It's not actually doing anything actually productive and it's supposed supposedly you know a generation of value of something a unit to store value in and then people will oh, you do dollars well okay well we can argue that philosophy another time 
uh, it's you have to have that shared delusion, I suppose. But looking at Bitcoin, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I don't really understand what's going on here. And yeah, I can look at the graphs of the value growing exponentially. But all that's telling me is that a bunch of suckers are getting sucked in. The suckers. Uh, and it's very easy to fool people. And all you have to do to keep pumping it up is to bring more people in willing to pay incrementally higher prices. And no, I don't want to ride that roller coaster because I might not understand Bitcoin, but I definitely understand to a certain extent people and the fear of missing out in the quote risk. This is their perspective of risk. The risk of feeling like you're left behind. There's no such thing as risk free. And I've got another story here, and I'll come back to long-term capital management in a moment. So here's another story. It's from when I worked at TIA Craft, and we were developing life cycle mutual funds. And the issue with life cycle mutual funds, there's a variety of issues that I don't want to delve into, but the research had shown, and I had seen some pretty substantial proof, that there is a substantial number of people who will not allocate their 401k asset allocation away from the default, whatever it happens to be. And the problem was that the default allocation in general was something that's considered risk-free, like a money market mutual fund. Of course, not even in the highest uh, you know, rate environment did a money market mutual fund ever really acquire much returns compared to what you could do in the equity markets that it just it's just cash it's just cash sitting there it and it's better than not saving cash but people were not you know sometimes people would forget that you're supposed to allocate something a lot of times people were scared of making a stupid decision the companies, on the other hand, the sponsors of the 401ks, didn't want to be sued because they're fiduciaries. As fiduciaries, they can be sued for supposedly giving bad advice or having a wrong default. So they wanted to have a safe harbor and, you know, cash was supposedly a safe harbor. But let's think about it. It's, quote, risk-free. You put the money in, you get the same money out. Okay, I'm thinking of Jesus in the parable of the talents. Okay, I took the one talent, which is a coin that was worth a lot of money, by the way. It was very expensive. So this was not a minor amount of money. Uh, so one talent, put it in a hole in the ground and you get it back out. Well, that's risk free. But in the parable, of course, the master was like, wait a second, why didn't you just go to the bank and get interest. Well, that's, of course, back in the day when they paid real interest. Um, and we don't get that now, even in a rising rate environment, you're not getting much interest paid to you. But this is a problem. Inflation would eat it away. Even in TIA Kref's own history, there was a reason Kref existed. It's not TIA Kref anymore. It's TIA again. It started out as TIAA, 
Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association. Um, so it's just annuities, it's all fixed rate stuff. You would have a guaranteed interest rate and then they would do dividend rates, but it was all based on bonds and treasury bonds. And yeah, you'd have corporate bonds and other things in there. Uh, there would be moderate interest rates, but they found out that the investments were not uh, keeping up with inflation. So this is what was making me think about there is no such thing as risk-free because often when we're doing risk-free interest rates and that what you put in is what you get out, that's in nominal dollars. But if you are saving for retirement, you're putting in money and you're hoping to get out a certain amount that is going to cover your expenses. You're not wanting money for the sake of it being money. You're, you want the money for the stuff it can buy. Um, so, if what you can buy is a lot less due to inflation, well, that risk-free is not looking so hot now, is it? So TIAA, back in the day, had to add CREF, which was the uh, College Retirement Equities Fund. And that was basically the first kind of variable annuity where they had equities investments. So they did some research before they created this fund and it was like one huge variable annuity without much in the way of guarantees because this was back in like 1952 or something like that when they founded the CREF part of TIAA CREF. Now for branding purposes, they just went back to TIAA, but they still have the CREF part, uh, which has all the equities. And so that was to keep up with inflation. So the, the issue is you have to choose essentially a portfolio of risks when you're in finance. So I'm just talking about finance here, not insurable risks. This is all market and financial risks. You can transform some of these risks in different ways with these options. The issue is when you lock in certain things, now you start to become exposed to other kinds of risk. In the case of long-term capital management, they became exposed to liquidity risk. They had to unwind some of their positions and were forced to take a loss that if they could have ridden it out, if they could only ride out the market a little bit, they could have made their profit eventually. And this is one of the problems with uh, shorts, that is shorting assets in the market because you get margin called. And this is the problem when you are shorting, there is basically an infinite potential downside. Well, what's the risk to those on the other side of the short? Because when you have these kinds of swaps, you have a long position and a short position. Um, and the person on the long side want to make sure that they will get paid if they're in the profitable position. They know that there is what's called a credit risk. The credit risk here is the risk, the chance that the promise will not be fulfilled, that it will not be paid. So you get exposed to credit risks all the time. You just don't think of them necessarily in those terms as credit risks or um, we call it counterparty credit, um, counterparty credit risks. Uh, an example would be you buy insurance. 
for something uh, now that you transform some of the risk that you're exposed to for whatever you're insuring for uh, to the insurance company. So they take it on. They are more able to absorb that risk in general because usually they have a portfolio of risks that they can diversify a lot of your risk away in that the variability for them is less than it is for you as an individual. That's for insurable risks. There are other ways for non-insurable risks or concentrated risks that other um, you know, players in the market can deal with, but that's for another time. In any case, you do have counterparty credit risk. It tends to be very low for insurance companies because they're regulated. They're required to hold reserves to cover the promises. And then on top of that, they're required to hold risk-based capital in case the reserves, which is based somewhat on the expected losses, the capital is and this is what the capital and the reserves are part of what actuaries are part of in measuring the cost of risk, the quantification of risk. So reserves are based somewhat around what we expect the losses to cost. The capital on top of that is kind of with percentiles in general, there are different ways that you can set capital levels, but it's never ever risk-free and we know that we just have different levels and you can see that different insurance companies get different credit ratings um, financial strength ratings is usually what they're called of how well capitalized they are when their capital falls too low they will be taken over by regulators uh, and they can go into liquidation and uh, you can end up with your promises not fully paid so that there still is a counterparty credit risk with insurance. It's just a very, very small uh, probability. In the U.S., we really haven't had insolvencies that bad. Um, there have been some bad insurance insolvencies before the current risk-based capital uh regime, which got founded in the 1990s. Imagine that. Um, there was a really bad insurer insolvency in the United Kingdom in the early 2000s called Equitable Life UK. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these life insurance companies have similar names. So there was uh, another Equitable Life that's not the same company. Anyway, Equitable Life UK went under because one promise, so one of the promises, one of the risks that the policyholders, and so these were annuitants, they were buying annuities that had a guarantee built into them. So this is a risk that they were trying to get away from, and it was a minimum interest rate that they could settle their annuities at. So that's a risk, you know, we used we had very low interest rates for a long time. Uh, the annuitants like having that guaranteed minimum. Well, it turns out the actuaries of the company valued that guarantee at zero, essentially. And it turned out that guarantee was worth a lot more than zero and wiped out the company, more or less. The 
promises did not get fulfilled because the interest rates did uh, fall quite a bit below that minimum guarantee, and it was a very expensive promise to make. So you need to think about this. There's no such thing as risk-free. You can transform it from one risk to another. So the, the one I like to think about, of course, is public pensions. I think about that one all the time. We think about retirement income well. You can outlive your retirement income if you just have a pile of money. No one's guaranteeing that income that's coming in. If you are getting a pension, the problem is you have now transferred that risk, the investment risk, your longevity risk, a whole basket of risks to whoever guaranteed that income to you. Could be an insurance company, could be an employer, but what if they cannot fulfill that promise? For insurance companies, we have a variety of regulations to ensure to the best of our abilities that they do fulfill those promises, that they have sufficient reserves, sufficient capital, and that they have supervision outside those companies to check their books, that the balance sheets are strong. On top of your regulators, you have credit rating agencies. Then you have other third parties that are looking at them. So those are the insurance companies. But then you have public pensions. Well, nobody makes the public pensions put enough away to cover those promises. There are a variety of bodies that say this is how you do accounting for these pensions and how you're supposed to value them. However, it tends to be the same people who are sponsoring these pensions or have direct interest. There is a conflict of interest in terms of those who need to be protected for this promise and, you know, those who are having to pay for it. So you need to think about these things. There are risks. You can't get away from them. You can transform them from one kind of risk to another risk, but it still exists in some form. Even if someone else bears it, then you can transform a financial risk to a credit risk. So think on that. (laughs) Enjoy whatever risks are in your life. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. I'll talk to y'all later.